Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, we are uh, not exactly known for our dazzling and brilliant intros, but uh, once in a while we come up with something clever and sometimes it's a little less clever. And I thought, you know, today I don't have anything all that brilliant and exciting to say, but I want to just kind of do a regular intro. I thought that might be fun. So Phil, how are you doing this week? Well, Mike, I'm glad you asked because I am feeling tip top, super duper, super califragilistic, expialidocious, as my nanny used to say. Ah. Uh, yeah, but uh, that's got no bearing on this episode though. Well, I mean, hopefully it'll carry into the episode, right? The fact that you're doing so super duper will lead to a super duper episode, right? Well, of course, but every episode is is tip top and <laughs> fantastic. And, that is know. true. I mean, let's face it, we are we are pretty much you know batting a thousand. We have a, a, a perfect track record. Yeah, if there was a if there was an after the ending uh, award, <laughs> we'd get it every time. That's right. That is right. I think I think we would. I think. Yeah. You Are you listening, that. Academy? Or whoever, whatever it is who <laughs> whoever you know, gives podcasts out, right podcast awards yeah yeah get on that would you podcast award people you know we're, we're here that's right right we're we're ready to accept our award for you know best after the ending podcast yeah yeah uh, <laughs> damn right mind you if we fail I'll be gutted if we don't want to yeah yeah that would be very disappointing if we lost best after the ending podcast to another podcast I would I would be pretty upset at that point yeah god damn you other you know counterfeit <laughs> after the ending right. Uh, well, Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them in this episode? Yes, well, we'll be going after the ending of uh, Ronan and Gone Girl, and we'll be talking about our top five favorite performances by Jodie Foster. Yeah, it's a jam-packed episode, so why don't we uh, why don't we skip through any more introing and get right to the meat of the podcast, Phil? Let's talk about Ronan. Why don't you give us a breakdown? For those of you who don't remember, this will help you remember, because it's one of those movies that did kind of okay, but it seems to have been forgotten. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, I, I guarantee you probably know what this movie is. So, Phil, tell us about Ronan. Yeah, so here's a bit of a rundown of Ronan. Uh, it's made in 1998, written by John David Zeke and David Mamet, of all people, and it was directed by John Frankenheimer. This is the one that stars uh, Robert De Niro, Jean Reno, Natasha McElhone, Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, and Jonathan Price, and there's lots of car chases. But anyway, just a quick one. It's got quite a cast. Oh, it's an amazing cast. I remember seeing yeah. it. I'm just, uh, well, we'll get to what we thought of the film in a minute. But this is basically a group of mercenaries are hired to steal a briefcase. It's their contact is a woman called Deirdre, played by Natasha. And on the, the main mercenary is Sam, played by Robert De Niro, and there's also Vincent, played by Sean Reno. Uh, what follows are various gunfights, lots and lots of car chases, crashes, various double crosses, and tense conversations in European cities. It well, and we eventually learn that Sam was actually a CIA agent, and he warns Deirdre to get out and run so she does and disappears. And as a result of what went down, there's a, a peace agreement between Sinn Féin and the British government, and Sam and Vincent... Well, a few people die, but Sam and Vincent remain sort of friends or contacts, and they part on good terms. 
And that's uh, Ronan. There you go. And there is a ballet dancer named Natasha who gets killed by a sniper when her boyfriend, who's a Russian dude, betrays another dude. And I'm only saying that because it may or may not come to play <laughs> in my ending. That's all. Well, yeah, because there's lots of... I could have gone, gone into great detail, but lots of it would have been, and then they drive down the street. Right. And then uh, there's lots of... And he spins the car around. That's amazing. Whoa. It's also largely based around kind of a MacGuffin and that there's this case that keeps being, you know, everyone's after and everything. Yeah. And really, it's just an excuse to get there to be more action scenes and more tense conversations in cafes, as opposed to there being really a, a strong plot. So... I don't think there was really, but you, you could have spent 20 minutes trying to say, and then so-and-so betrays so-and-so, and this guy gets the case, and this girl gets betrayed, and this, you know, it's just not really that important. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that's uh, that's a bit of a rundown. What do you think of the film, Mike? I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not really a terribly big fan of the film. Mm, yeah, it's yeah. It's a good cast, and there are some good car chases in it. You know, John Frankenheimer knows how to construct a movie, but I didn't find any of the characters terribly endearing. You know, I'm not a huge Robert De Niro fan. I don't dislike Robert De Niro, but yeah, yeah. this is kind of like Robert De Niro in sort of like phone it in mode a little bit for me. Well, I think to be honest though, the script, I mean, it's got good script writers, but this, his character, well, lots of the characters didn't really have much character to them. They were just, oh, there's American, there's a French guy, there's a Scandinavian guy and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's kind of ar- archetypes, you know? And so, you know, the end result is it's, it, I think it just focuses, I don't want to say too much on action because I, I think action movies need to have a lot of action, but that just the characters never get interesting enough to care about. So all the action in the world doesn't make it, you know, it's not like, well, like the, like the mission impossible movies, especially the recent ones where, yeah, yeah. you know, it's action scene after action scene, but they still manage to build in these character moments that make you really care about these people. You know, Ronan, I just, you know, I found it very forgettable despite having, some great car chase scenes uh, i feel much the same same as you i remember being excited to see it because the trailers were really right good. right exactly uh, and then going in sitting down in the cinema going Wah! and them not really caring about any of the characters i mean the car chases were all good but they just it just seemed to go on and then they'd stop and talk and then there was another one <laughs> right and i just didn't i didn't feel i didn't feel invested in any of the characters or the story or anything like that which was a shame right yes because everybody everybody involved was, does amazing work but this one for me it just didn't uh, come together. Right. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Mm. But there are probably some fans of the film out there. And so it is for you, Ronan fans, that we are presenting our After the Endings. Yes. but uh, So that's what, what happened in the film. But Mike, what happens in your day after? Okay. Well, Sam walks into the familiar bar and has a seat with his back against the wall and the front door in his line of sight. Even though the bar is known as a safe haven for the intelligence community, he'd learned a long time ago never to take chances. He orders a beer, then slowly glances around. He sees a couple of former CIA operatives he recognizes, a couple of gents who are clearly MI6, and even a man who he's pretty sure belongs to the Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service. He nurses his beer, reflecting on recent events and life in general. He downs a few more, then realizes it's time to return to the empty apartment he calls home. He barely notices the nondescript man walking in as he leaves, probably just a pencil pusher, he thinks. The man stumbles and falls right in front of Sam, who catches him. Sam picks up the man's briefcase and hands it back to him, and the man offers a word of thanks, then continues into the bar. Sam is barely 30 feet out the door when a devastating explosion rips through the bar, destroying it almost instantly. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Whoopsie. Okay. (laughs) No, that's good. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. All right. So let's hear what's happening in your day after then. Okay. Well, Sam is brought back in and debriefed. His CIA bosses mentioned the amount of cars that were destroyed over the past few days. (laughs) <laughs> and a few of his colleagues uh, 
watched it repeatedly on the CCTV that had caught the car chases. So Sam was tasked with teaching some new advanced driving techniques to other agents when he returned from a few weeks of leave. He enjoyed the simple task of teaching as it, uh, it wasn't as tense, he wasn't always watching his back and he actually seemed to be relaxing for the first time in a long time. But his thoughts kept going back to Deirdre. She'd just disappeared after he told her to get away. He had no idea what happened to her and he felt she could be in trouble. He wasn't sure what, just, just a gut feeling. So he made some inquiries through his various contacts. Days passed, weeks passed, until he was contacted for a meetup. He headed to the designated location, a dirty diner in Los Angeles, and he was surprised and happy to see it was Vincent. They spent a few minutes making small talk and catching up, telling each other as much as they dared tell each other, and ordered some food. Eventually they got to the subject of Deirdre. Vincent reported she was apparently being held by a gang led by a man called Dominic Toretto. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very cool. Okay, that's. Uh, I, I do have to say though, when you said um, when you said he meets up in a dingy LA diner with Vincent for a minute, I was thinking of John Travolta. I was like Vincent Vega, and then I remembered oh, yeah. that Vincent was a character yeah. in the film. So, <laughs> oh, that would have been good. But uh, yeah, but anyway, that's uh, that's going on. What was going on though with yours after this uh, the explosion? What's going on with Sam now? Okay, so six days later, Sam is exhausted. He hasn't slept more than ten hours total in the days since the explosion. He was still sitting in stunned silence when the CIA picked him up and began the interrogation. Apparently, the man with the briefcase was carrying a major explosive device, and their incidental contact had the CIA convinced that Sam was in on it, receiving information or instructions from the man before the bomb went off. After a day of interrogation, none of which had been pleasant, Sam had managed to escape while they were transporting him to a new location. He quickly disappeared, utilizing a series of safe houses he'd been smart enough to set up over the years. Now, using the skills he'd developed over three decades in the business, he'd tracked down the person responsible. As he's scoping out the warehouse where the midnight meet is supposed to go down, a jeep pulls up and a woman gets out to address the waiting mercenaries. Sam is surprised to see who it is. Natasha, the figure skater who had been killed, or supposedly killed, when Mickey killed Gregor and stole the case on the Ronin mission a year ago. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now, which would be a big surprising cliffhanger yeah, yeah, if anybody yeah, remembered yeah. any of the characters in this movie. But nobody does. So, um, <laughs> But for those of you who are listening who are like, OK, who is that? You know, just go just pretend that it's really exciting and shocking. And you're going <gasps> as I you're listening. And that'll, right. But she was dead. Exactly. And, oh, and that'll, no. that'll make it much more impactful. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Phil, for playing along. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Thank you. That's the reaction I was hoping for. <laughs> OK. Very good. <laughs> All right, so Very good. thank you. Thank you. So let's hear what's going on with your immediate aftermath then. Okay, Sam begins trying to track down Dominic Toretto. He finds out that this guy had started as a street racer, but had become a crime lord. Sam's sources say that Dom, as Dominic Toretto likes to be known, seems to be insane, as he talks constantly about crazy events he thinks he's done. He says he jumped a car from one building to another, was chased by a submarine, <laughs> other things. But as far as Sam can find out, none of this is true. <laughs> Hey now. <laughs> Eventually, Sam speaks to Agent Luke Hobbs of the U.S. Diplomatic Security Service. Nice. Hobbs recalls Dom from a previous mission years before. Apparently, Dom had lost his mind when one of his crew had died, and he now lived in a fantasy world where he thought he did wild and crazy stunts, but actually didn't. Mm. But that made him unpredictable and dangerous. Hobbs warned Sam all about this, and he also mentioned that Dom was a little hard to understand if he should end up talking to him. Family. <laughs> but Sam feels he has to get Deirdre to safety and that's my immediate aftermath 
Uh, I like it. I like how you're using uh, the Ronin after the ending to rewrite the history of the Fast and Furious movies, yes. which I take a little exception to because you know what a big fan of those movies. Yeah, I no, and I, I quite <laughs> enjoy some of them. Some of them, but yeah. it's just they are very over the top. Oh, I, I know. That's what I love. That's so what I'm I love just. Lo- I'm just looking at the Fast and Furious films through the filter of Ronin. Sure. No, I get that. I get yeah. that. But I will point out, even though we're getting off topic, that the Fast and Furious movies do what Ronin could not, which is take ridiculous, over the top action yes. sequences, but frame them around characters that as as you know, melodramatic and over the top as they are, you still care about them by the oh, end. Oh, that's of the movie. very, very, very true. Because you so. know, as the as a guy says, family. <laughs> right. I get that. I get that. But I still care about them more than I do any of the characters. Around. Oh, I know, and, I, and you actually remember the characters in the Fast and Furious right. films as well. Right. Exactly. Oh my! What, what happens? You know, long term. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, Natasha returns to the jeep after delivering intel to the mercenaries and orders the driver to go. The jeep gets a quick start, but after a few minutes, it pulls over to the side of the road next to a large field. Sam turns around from the driver's seat and fixes his gun on Natasha. Natasha looks at him coolly without saying a word. Sam can see the large scar across her face. How she survived the sniper's shot was beyond him, but the damage was clearly severe. Well, 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 so the hunted becomes the hunter, Natasha says. I have to admit, I was disappointed when the bomb missed you, but I did find the irony of you being blamed for the explosion quite enjoyable. Why? asks Sam. Why do this? I had nothing to do with what happened. You all did, Natasha snapped. Everyone involved in that mission will pay. Do you see what happened to me because of all of you? Look at my face. Do you think I could ever perform in the ballet after this? No, I will make you all... Natasha never finishes her sentence as Sam pulls the trigger and shoots her dead. (gasps) Then he starts driving again. It's a six-hour drive to the CIA field headquarters where Natasha's body, plus the recording he'd made of their conversation, should be enough to prove his innocence. And that's the end. Oh, very good. I like that. Had a good, uh, nice, a nice self-contained story. Yeah, right. Exactly. Little, little sequel. You know, a little twist. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and Sam fixes it, and that's the end. Yeah, and always good when you stop the villain mid monologue. Right. Exactly. He doesn't care. You know. Yeah. He's got enough. He just wants to get his name cleared. Yeah. More, more superheroes and secret agents should do that. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, that's mine. Then let's hear how yours all wraps up with the fantasy world of Dom Toretto. Family. Okay. <laughs> Sam had found Dom and his crew and was seriously unimpressed. He was su- surprised at their reputation, but eventually realized that they were all willing to take insane risks. Sam also discovered that Deirdre had been taken hostage by Dom due to some double cross over a previous deal. Checking out the situation, Sam called in Vincent for help. They ended up working their way into the street racing community, and even though they were a little older than most of the people taking part, they managed to challenge Dom to a race. While Sam and Dom do the quarter mile thing, Vincent and a few of the guys that they'd brought on board raided Dom's HQ, rescued Deirdre and got out. Sam won the race when Dom, for some crazy reason, tried to pass in front of a speeding train and ended up dying in a fiery wreck. Sam returned to Vincent and thanked him for his help. Then, tongue to Deirdre, Sam explained that he just wanted to be safe. He'd set up a new identity for her and he drove her to an airstrip where she headed off to safety. Sam headed home and got ready for his next assignment, whatever that may be. And that's my long term. I like it. I like it. I, I think the idea of them challenging Dom to a race, like, you know, because they're we with all the car chases we saw in the movie, they're clearly very skilled drivers. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, you know, it works. Yeah. Although I don't like that you killed off some of my Fast and Furious characters, but that's okay. Well, you know, you know, they're not technically the same, or are they? Right. Exactly. Family. Okay. I'll let I'll let it slide. I'll let it slide. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Phil, do you have any Ronin trivia for us? Yes, I do. Eighty cars were destroyed during the filming of Ronin. Sweet Jeebus. I know, and three hundred stunt drivers were employed. Wow. 
Because as well as the people, you know, the stunt cars and those ones, we also had all the other traffic on the roads being driven by stunt people. That's right, that's right. The contents of the silver briefcase was never revealed, making it a classic MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. And Sean Beam was in this film. <laughs> right. And his his character did not die. It's true. I um, It's funny, too, because originally I was going to have my big reveal be that it was Spence, which was Sean Bean's character, getting revenge. Um, but I didn't really have a good <laughs> enough motive, and I liked the idea of bringing back a character who had actually died more. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that was where I was starting. My, that was my starting point was. Ah, I got you, got you, yeah. So. But it's yeah, one of the rare occasions when Sean Bean's character doesn't actually die in right. a film or TV show. Right. <laughs> good for him. Good for him. All right. Very nice. Okay. So that is Ronan. Let's move on then to Gone Girl, shall we? Yes, let's do it. And I'm looking forward to how you sum this one up, Mike. Well, I will tell you. So Gone Girl, 2014, directed by David Fincher, written by Gillian Flynn based on her own best-selling novel and starring Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike, Neil Patrick Harris, and Tyler Perry. So the film is told in alternating first-person perspectives from the two main characters, Nick and Amy. That's important to get out there because it's it, it's how the book is written and the movie did a really good job of adapting that mm-hmm. uh, that kind of conceit, if you will. So on their fifth anniversary, Nick Dunn, played by Ben Affleck, comes home to find his wife Amy missing. The police investigate and find evidence that she was abducted and the case becomes huge media news in which many people think Nick killed Amy, although his twin sister Margot eventually believes he's innocent. We learn that he had been cheating on Amy and that their marriage was in trouble. We then find out in a major shift uh, and a narrative shift and, an, and, a, and a point of view shift mm-hmm. that Amy, played by Rosamund Pike, is alive and on the run. She framed Nick for her disappearance after discovering his infidelity. Amy gets robbed while on the road and, quite desperate, ends up with her old ex-boyfriend, the controlling and obsessed Desi Collings, played by Neil Patrick Harris. After Nick appears on a TV show and professes his love for Amy, she kills Desi, frames him for her abduction, and returns home to Nick. Nick, Margot, Detective Boney, and lawyer Tanner Bolt, who all know that Nick was innocent, know that Amy is guilty but can't prove anything. Nick intends to expose Amy anyway, but Amy reveals that she's pregnant, and Nick ultimately feels trapped and forced to stay, presenting themselves as a happy couple to the world at large. And that is Gone Girl. Excellent. As I like to call it, Chasing Amy. <laughs> that's that's good. Very good. I like it. <laughs> no, but you, you, you sum that up very well. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you what do you think about the film? I, I enjoyed it, to be honest. I've never read the book, but then I saw the film. I like people involved. It was yeah, I, I mean, good. Uh, I enjoyed it. A nice little mystery. That isn't actually a mystery when you get right down to it, but it's done well. The reveals done very nice. Got a cast of good. They all do a good job. It's not one of not one of my favorite films, but it was a, an enjoyable thriller. Sure, sure. And uh, just it's just Ben Affleck was really good in it. Uh, like yeah. at the end, just the look on his face, and he just he's just you just going, oh my god, the poor sod. Even right. though he's a bit of a sleaze in it, but uh, you, you sort of you can sort of see you can sort of see the the reasons why the people did what they did. But then Amy obviously just goes a lot more extreme. Right, right. But, uh, yep. but yeah, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. What about you? Uh, yeah, I really like it actually. I um I, I loved the book. I read the book before I saw the movie, and you know at the at the turning point when it reveals that Amy is alive it, it is like a really big shock you know where you're like oh my god you know didn't see that coming type of thing and i was wondering how they were going to translate the book into a movie because the book is like i said told in these first person perspectives you know it kind of goes back and forth from nick narrating to amy narrating and you don't really know yeah. you know who's doing what and um 
I thought that David Fincher did an amazing job of capturing that, that sort of dual perspective. Uh, I think he did a fantastic job just translating this awesome, awesome book into a really great movie. So I might say I like it better than you. Um, I do. I really enjoy it. I think the performances are terrific. And I really wanted Rosamund Pike to win an Oscar that year. She was nominated. Yeah, yeah. And I thought she deserved it. I I can't remember who won. I do seem to recall it was somebody who was also really deserving. Um, I, I remember that being a year where I was a little bit torn, but I think she is just amazing in this movie. And the fact that it hasn't, I mean, she's doing very well for herself. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, but the yeah, fact that she yeah. isn't kind of more of a household name star yet really, really bothers me because I've been watching her for years and I've, I've loved her for a long time. And I thought this movie was just, you know, her performance is phenomenal. Yeah. So. I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. She's one of those ones always. Yeah. She should have. Well, she's 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 still doing really well, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, she's still getting good roles and and you know major roles in movies and stuff like that. But you know, if you say to the man on the street, "Are you a Rosamund Pike fan?" They they don't. Most people don't know the name off the top of their head. Yeah, which yeah. I, I think General is public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, but yeah, I do. I really love the movie. I think it's great. Oh, right. And David Fincher is one of my favorite directors. So, you know, he. I think he did a great job. Yeah, I do like him. He's very good at uh, translating these these tough books right right exactly i'll make you know bring them to the screen yeah 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 excellent all right well let's go ahead and get into our uh after our endings uh so phil what's going on in your day after okay well nick just does not know what to do his decision his decision to stay with amy keeps no longer away at him he's seen the length she will go to to ensure she gets her way or if she's wronged he's scared but then there's the thought of being a father having a child does appeal to him and he he's excited he wants to see this child born even though he doesn't think it's his Yet his imagination makes him think the child will end up being like Damien from The Omen if, she, if he takes after <laughs> Amy. Right. Detective Boney decides to keep digging despite there being no obvious way to prove Amy's guilt. Margot, Nick's sister, just feels sick all the time knowing that Nick is basically trapped. And that's my day after. Mm, very nice. Thank you, thank you. But what's going on with yours? Okay, well, you know, once in a while I like to branch out or try something a little different. So we'll see if this uh, hopefully this works as well as I'd like it to. So Okay, go on. Go. All right. I thought this would get easier. I thought once Amy was back, the media attention would die down. But I can still barely leave the house without some reporter trying to get an interview or a comment. I wish they would just leave us alone. Things are better now. What are they expecting to happen? And I have to give Amy credit. She's really held up her end of the bargain and made this work. I realize now that we had to make it work for the sake of our unborn child. Geez, I can't believe that the due date is just around the corner. While I can't entirely forgive Amy for what she put me through, I have to admit that the past few months have been really good. I feel like we're back to where we were in the early days. And I do think she'll make a great mother. I don't know. Maybe I'm just fooling myself. But I feel like, well, I feel like everything's going to be okay. As long as we can get Detective Boney to stop poking around, that is. I told her to let it go, but she's like a dog with a bone, no pun intended. Still, how long can it be before she'll have to move on? It can't be that long, right? And that's my day after. Oh, very good. Very good. I like you. Thank you. I like the way you're doing it uh, first person as well. Yeah, well, thanks. I was just thinking yeah. about the the book and the and the movie and the perspectives, and I thought that was kind yeah, of yeah. A, a neat part of it. So I thought, let me let me try and carry that on and see if it works. Oh, cool, cool. Thanks. All right, well, let's hear what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay, well, the child is born, and Nick cannot believe that Amy insists on calling it Damien. <laughs> I don't know if that's meant to be funny, but I like it. <laughs> I know it's like it sort of is. It's sort of one of those ones where you go and oh my god, that's funny in a kind of way. Right, also right, exactly. Also ties in the fact that Ben Affleck was briefly Batman, and in the comics, Bat- Batman's son is Damien. Oh, that's right. Very yeah. nice. Nick is even more shocked when the paternity test shows that Damien is indeed his child. Detective Boney and Margot also find it surprising, and Boney begins making inquiries at the fertility clinics around the area. She keeps going further and further until she eventually finds one who recognises that Amy visited there months before. 
It again proves that Amy is excellent at planning and very devious, but it's also of not much use to, to disprove Amy's story and what happened with Desi. This all makes Detective Boney more frustrated and her obsession with Amy grows. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. I like it. So I, a little, some, a little, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. some yeah. parallel paths in our different, in our endings. Mm. So we'll see how they end up. But what's going on with your immediate aftermath? Okay, here we go. Life is perfect. Nick is perfect. Baby Colton is perfect. I could have skipped the 17 hours of labor, but it was worth it. When I look into my baby's blue eyes, my life is complete. I never knew how much Nick really loved me, but he's been such a great father, so attentive and so sweet. Honestly, our marriage has been better than ever before. I know it was extreme, but putting him through what I did had to be done. I had to teach Nick how to be a good husband, and it worked. And I knew he'd be a great father. I just knew it. Now every time I hold my baby in my arms, it just washes away the past. I don't look at Nick and think of him in the arms of another woman anymore. I look at him and see the father of my child, my husband, my soulmate. Now if only I could forget what I did to Desi. I know it was necessary, but it still makes me nervous that Detective Boney keeps asking around after it. I can't imagine she'll find anything new at this point, but it still makes me nervous. I don't know what I'd do if something happened to our perfect, perfect family at this point. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Oh, well, know what she's like and what she's capable of. That's really scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was sort of the intent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, I want to hear what's going on with Detective Boney's obsession. So give us your long term. Okay. Amy has disappeared once more. It's been two weeks and Nick realizes that it's the first time in three years that he feels relaxed. Being on edge for so long has just almost broke him. But he's proven to be a good father and enjoys his time with Damien. Amy had headed out two weeks ago to visit an old friend, and that was the last time he'd seen her. She'd been seen by other people in town leaving, so there was no feeling of foul play on his part. That night, Nick checked, made sure there was no reporters outside, and took out the trash and headed into the garage. He jumped when he saw a figure standing there, but relaxed when he realised it was Detective Boney. It's done, she says before leaving. Nick nods, smiles, goes into the house and gets a beer. The next day, Amy's car is found. It had crashed off a road and gone down a cliff. Amy's dead body was still in the driver's seat. There was no evidence of foul play. And that's my ending. <laughs> oh, wow. I like that. Thank you very much. Nice, nicely done. I like a little revenge story there with getting Detective Boney and, and Nick together on that. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. I like it. Okay, but what's going on with yours then? All right. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say here. Losing both your parents at 19 isn't something you're supposed to have to deal with, but my therapist says getting some of my thoughts down on paper will help me process my grief. Oh, wow. A boating accident? How does that even happen in this day and age? At least my Aunt Margot survived. She's been distant since the accident, but she told me that Mom and Dad died together, which is the way they would have wanted it. She says their romance was one for the ages. I don't know, I guess that makes it a little better. I saw that detective lady at Mom and Dad's funeral. I don't know what she wanted, but I saw her and Margot arguing. God, it's, it's so weird how much of my life she was around for, always just hanging around on the outskirts. Aunt Margot once made a comment about her trying to destroy mom and dad's marriage, but she was drunk, so I didn't think too much about it at the time. My mom and dad had the perfect life, didn't they? And with that, Colton Dunn looks up from the podium at his book reading, and the enormous crowd erupts into applause. He thanks the crowd and then sits down to start autographing copies of his latest bestseller, Love After Lies, The True Story of Nick and Amy Dunn. As he signs the first copy, he looks up and sees an older couple lingering on the outskirts of the crowd. They smile at him proudly for a moment, making eye contact just for a second. Then the man pulls his hat down low over his eyes, while the woman pulls her scarf over her face. Before he knows it, they're gone, and Colton returns to autographing, the line of fans stretching into the hundreds. And that's the end. Oh, very good. Thank you. 
Oh, and I like the little the couple there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I was trying. Is to, it them? Isn't a, it them? Oh. Right. See, I have a picture in my head of what happened, but I didn't want to paint it too clearly. So I'm hoping people will kind of draw their their own. Conclusions, yeah. Yeah. You know, very good. Yeah. Uh, I like see it. what you know what they think. But yeah, I kind of I kind of. Well, yeah, because I was coming with like different things there, and I think it's often it's better to just let your imagination go along with it and just right. tease right. you. Yeah. Exactly. Very good. Very good. Kind of trying to keep the the sort of the spirit of the ending of the book, you know, which is a little. Ambi- not ambiguous per se, but you know, definitely not like a neat, tidy ending. You know. Yeah, yeah, very good. No, I like that a lot. Thank you. All right, very cool. So those are uh, those were our endings. Phil, do you have any Gone Girl trivia this week? Yes. Well, David Fincher shot 500 hours of material over the 100 day shoot. Wow. Which averaged about five hours per day. Whew. And that's a lot. That's a lot that, of stuff. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. It was the feature film debut of Carrie Coon, who played Margot. Who was fantastic in the movie. Yeah, she was. Very yeah. good, yeah. Reese Witherspoon, Charlize Theron, Natalie Portman, Emily Blunt, Rooney Mara, Olivia Wilde, Abby Cornish, and Julianne Hough were some of the people considered for the role of Amy. And Seth Rogen, Brad Pitt, John Hamm, and Ryan Reynolds were considered for the part of Nick Dunn. Hmm, interesting. I, I think, you know, obviously some very talented actors in there, but I, I don't know that anybody would have been as good as Rosamund Pike in that role. I mean, mm-hmm. definitely not Reese Witherspoon. But, um, and uh, and Nick, you know, there's something about Ben Affleck. He does kind of, in his more recent roles, he's he's kind of had this very, like, non-acting acting style where he's very, like, yeah. uh, reserved. He kind of holds everything inside. But it really works well for this part. I know what you mean, yeah. yeah. And there's something about him because of his public persona where he's sort of, like, not really the most well-liked guy. Like... Yeah, not in terms like a of scuzziness kind of thing about him. Of well, and, yeah, like and that. I think like just there, there's a lot of people who don't like him because he made all these romantic comedies and stuff that people don't like. And then like with the Batman thing, like there's just, you know, he's one of those polarizing actors, I think, that some people really like him and some people really don't. But so that because of that, yeah, yeah. playing the part of a character where some people really like him and some people really don't, it, it kind of was a, a little bit of truth bleeding into the fiction, I think, and it worked quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point, yeah. Very cool. All right, well, there you go. So those are our endings for uh, Ronan and Gone Girl. And uh, now it's time to move into our 100 stars of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein Phil and I take one of our favorite actors and share our top five performances from them. And this week we are doing Jodie Foster. Uh, so uh, she's been acting a very, very long time. Phil, how do you feel about Jodie Foster? Uh, I do. I like her a lot. She's uh, every, Everything I've seen her and I've liked it, even if the film's not been that good. And she's one of those ones. She was a ch- started off as a child actor mm-hmm. and she made it through. Uh, and had a long career and she's also gone into directing and done lots of different directings but just look in case she made her acting debut back in 1968 right which is crazy so she's been doing it a long time uh, and it's she's covered a wide range of genres as well so, you know musicals dramas comedies action westerns you name it really sci-fi yeah she's done a bit of everything yeah but uh, I, I always like her she's always a solid solid performer uh, she's also over the years she's won two Academy Awards three uh, BAFTAs, two Golden Globe Awards, and yeah, so she's uh, top of game and really, really good. What about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you summed it up nicely. I, I do really like her. I think she's a very talented actress. I, I, There was a time I became slightly obsessed with her after one of her biggest movies, which I won't say which one it is because it might be showing up on our lists. But Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I kind of wanted to see a lot of her stuff. And, and then she sort of stopped making movies for a while or just like every like five years she would make a movie. And I, I do – she took a lot of time off to not act. And I, I wish she had been a little more prolific in her more recent years. Yeah, um, yeah, But yeah. I, I do always like when I see her in a movie, you know, up to this day. And I do think she adds a lot. And, you know, I just – I think she's a great, a great actress for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Phil, why don't you kick us off then and give us your number five? 
Okay, my number five is from 1976, and it's the musical gangster comedy Bugsy Malone. Hmm, good choice. It's it's the, as this is the one with all the kids playing, you know, the, the gangsters and and everybody. Uh, but Jodie Foster plays Tallulah, who's basically the the mall of uh, Fat Sam, and she's the, the star of the Speakeasy. And she apparently we find out that she uh, she had a thing with uh, Bugsy Malone back in the day. But out of all all the kids do a great job in this. But uh, I always felt that Jodie Foster was the one who. You would just go. She just. She was the one who basically just had the. She was the the best one who made you feel like yeah. She's she's part of this gangster world. She was. She had this kind of attitude to her. She was uh, older. She basically brought a a sense of authenticity to this bizarre kiddie gangster thing. Out out right. of all of them, some of them you just knew they were just they just going. Oh, these are, this is just kid acting, and there's you know the cameras in there. But when Jodie Foster was on, it just felt like you go and she was she was like a fully fle- fully developed character. And even though she doesn't have like the biggest, she's not in it that much, but she just had the the best part of it. And and her character has a lot of influence on the others. But uh, I just I just thought she was the best the best thing in the film. And uh, that's my number five. Good pick. I will admit I have not seen that film, so it didn't make my list. Oh well, there you go then. All right. So my number five is from 2006, and it is Flight Plan, uh, where she plays. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she plays Kyle Pratt, which is probably the least feminine character name ever. Um, <laughs> not there's anything wrong with that, but uh, uh, she plays a woman who is on a, a, a flight at 30,000 feet. She wakes up, and her daughter is missing. And when she tries to find her, nobody on the plane remembers her having a daughter, which, of course, they try to make her think that she's losing her mind. It's kind of like a, a really modern update on The Lady Vanishes from yeah, the yeah, Hitchcock yeah. classic. Um, and I do I do like the movie. It wasn't as great as I wanted it to be. It's not a favorite, but I, I do think that she's really good in it. She's got to basically go through the stages of grief within the film and then also manage to be kind of like a kick-ass, you know, save-the-day type of person at the end. Uh, it's it's a very similar role in a way to Panic Room, um, which I, I flip-flopped back and forth between the two of these, but I ultimately decided that Panic Room is a little more constrained uh, and it's a little more one emotion of panic. <laughs> kind yeah, of. yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm not, I, I think I'm more enamored with Panic Room is the way it's filmed as opposed to the any performances particular right. performance in the Not that she's bad in Panic Room. I just yeah. thought, you know, I think she gets to go through a much wider range of emotions in Flight Plan. So while it's a it's a good solid thriller, it's nothing great, I think her performance in it is is, you know, is the best thing about the movie. So that's my number five, Flight Plan. Excellent. Okay. Yes, so my number four is from two thousand and seven. It's a, a thriller by Neil Jordan called The Brave One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's Jodie Foster. She plays uh, a a New York radio DJ, well, host of a talk show, uh, and she ends up her and her partner beaten by thugs, and her partner dies, and she ends up getting. She's terrified. She gets a gun, and then basically, her character begins to change, and she becomes a vigilante. Goes around shooting. It's a bit like a death wish kind of thing going around. Person who's had been had a traumatic experience, then decides to go out and get their revenge. But it's uh, it's well, I, I I thought the film was good, uh, but it's it's. There are some problems with it, but uh, Jodie Foster does amazing things with it. The fact you see this character change from this this DJ, you know, who's quite kind of confident, and then the 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 uh, the event happens, and they lose the confidence. But then once they get the gun, it sort of changes them. Well, you just see the you just see them change, and then they just go out there trying to get uh, trying to use violence to fix themselves, which never ends up being a good good thing to do. But uh, Jodie Foster does an amazing job with it. Because it's uh, dealing with, as we've seen, various different character traits, uh, different uh, scenarios as well. She's involved. She's got a good supporting past as well. But she's uh, she's just great in it. It's as I say, it was quite. I was the film. Uh, 
didn't, I wasn't disappointed in it, but she was just she was just amazing in it, and I just uh, it carried me through her performance and just seeing where it was going to go with her and what she did with it. But uh, that's my number four. Very good pick. I like it. All right, well, my number four is uh, from 1976, but it is not the aforementioned Bugsy Malone. It is Freaky Friday, where she plays Annabelle. And, of course, she plays a young girl who swaps bodies with her mom. Uh, it was famously remade with Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who actually also quite did, did quite good in her role. But, um, you know, this is one I saw when I was a kid. Obviously, it's kind of a kid family classic. Um, it's one of her, obviously, younger roles when she was still kind of a kid actor. But, you know, she was a really good actress right from her very first role, I think. I, I think it's hard to deny that. And this one is, uh, you know, it's hard to pull off being, you know, like a, a whatever she is, 13 or 14 year old playing an adult trapped in a kid's body. And to do it convincingly, I, I think was pretty impressive. So, I, I, you know, I like this film. It's a fun movie. But I, I think that whereas a lot of kid actors might have done a very caricature sort of approach, she, you know, she really makes you believe there's a grown up trapped in a kid's body. I think that's pretty impressive. So Freaky Friday is my number four. Oh, an excellent choice. Yeah, there's a good, I, I enjoy Freaky Friday. It's a, yeah, good fun. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Uh, okay, my number three is uh, from 1988, and it's uh, Jonathan Kaplan's *The Accused*. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a hard watch, hard watch to be honest, because obviously Jodie Foster's character is basically she's raped at the beginning, and then it goes to court, and we're just we're following it through and everything. But uh, Jodie Foster again, she's playing this person who's gone through a major trauma. She's play, playing this character from the beginning, who's like this vibrant, confident person. Then the the uh, the event takes place, and then there's the time in court, and we're just at the different different times in her life, and she just does it so well. You're just this person who's the horror they faced and the way it breaks them, but then how they build themselves back up again. And it's a it's a powerhouse performance. And as I say, the film is it's a hard watch. I always feel, but uh, Jodie Foster's performance is just it's just outstanding, and it? it's just incredible what she does with such a dealing with such a you know traumatic events that people people unfortunately go through but uh, that's my number three yeah excellent choice i mean i think this is kind of a natural to end up on a list of her performances it's where she won her first oscar mm-hmm. um i've i've never actually seen the film um oh, okay yeah, yeah yeah so it didn't make my list i i have it in my queue actually uh it's one of those movies that i do want to see just just for the fact that i know that she's so good in it but it, like you said it's a hard watch and it's one of those ones where it's like ah when am i in the mood to watch that movie you know what i mean like you really have to <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah be in the right yeah. frame of mind for it it's not something you're just going to toss on on a friday night you know with a big bowl of popcorn you know so yeah there, uh, are, there are certain films like that aren't there where you know they're going to be really good right uh, but you're right. just going oh, i don't want to i'm not in the mood I, uh, yeah. I should watch it but uh right but yeah yeah that's definitely the case with this one so i'll, I'll yeah. get around to it one of these days but i do think that's a great choice yeah all right well my number three is a film that has appeared on your list already so by process of elimination you can probably guess that it is the brave one and honestly i i Everything you said about it is is true. It's an it's an okay film. It's not great. Yeah, um, yeah. But her performance is terrific. You know, watching her have to grieve and lose everything and then become the sort of vigilante. Uh, you know, it's it's a very strong performance um, in a movie that is not bad, not great, but she's terrific. So yeah. that's my number three, the brave one. Definitely. Yeah, if it'd been a, t- a slightly tighter script and uh, maybe some more dynamic kind of cinematography or something, it just it might have just knocked it up to the next level. Right, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Okay, but uh, my number two is from 1997, and it is Contact, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Uh, and Jodie Foster is playing Dr. Ellie Arroway, who works for SETI, and she's trying to find evidence of extraterrestrial life. And I just like this character she plays, who's uh, basically obsessed. She wants to find she wants to find aliens, basically, and she's she's having all these conversations, in-depth conversations with people, and we're, we're seeing her go through the, the drudgery of some of these 
you know, this job can be sometimes where you're just going through data, you're listening all the time, and it's just nothing's happening, but eventually, obviously, something's picked up and it goes on from there. And it's like, there's a, I like the way the whole world is going on around her and there's people come, keep coming and going in there, but she's just adamant. She's strong willed. She knows, she knows she's right. And yeah, there's always a strength with Jodie Foster's characters. There's this, this like inner core, yeah. which uh, she, I think she probably brings in from her own life, but just, she just, it's always there and the characters get battered, you know, in the various films there's always like knocked back in different ways and, you know, sometimes physically, sometimes intellectually. But this one, she just keeps on going, she keeps on pushing and she's she just does great things. And I I, I quite like the film as well. It's it's got a few little problems, but I, I really like the film as well. But uh yeah, my uh my number two is contact. Well, I think we might be uh, veering into where our lists might converge a little bit. Uh, we'll see what our number ones are. But my okay. number two is also Contact. <laughs> okay, um, cool, cool. For all the reasons you said, I do like that, you know, while she is obsessed with the aliens, it part of the reason for it has to do with her relationship with her father. And I think yeah, that gives yeah, the character yeah. a real depth rather than just being the sort of obsessed scientist, which is kind of a trope that can be overused and underplayed. Mm-hmm. She brings a real heart to the character. Um, I do really like this movie. I know it was polarizing when it came out. Uh, you know, there was some people thought it was too long or too boring or too sciencey. You know, I thought it was a really great, intelligent science fiction slash science fact kind of type of movie. Um, and uh, I really, I really enjoy it. But I do everything you said about it is true. That inner strength of hers, and you know, just carrying this movie on her shoulders the way she did it's it's phenomenal i think it's a great performance so yeah good uh, good choice let's see now if our number ones are the same because i figure it's got to be one of two films so yeah 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 i think probably is as well but just i just want to give a shout out as well to uh contact though that that scene one of the opening scenes where young galley played by jenna malone is running down the hallway and then it's a reflection in the the medicine cabinet and i just i just think that's such an amazing clever shot right right uh just it's just every time i watch that it blows me away uh-huh. There's one of the many bits in that film which I really like. Right. But yes, okay. So uh, yes, my number one is <laughs> 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. Yep, there we go. We've got, as you would, as you're always <laughs> fond of saying, we've got a bingo. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan Demme's film uh, from 1991, starring a little-known Welsh actor called Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> it's Hannibal Lecter, but yeah, we know the film. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Jodie Foster's Clarice Starling again. It's this character who's gone gets goes through traumatic experiences, and but there's this inner core, this perseverance she has to just keep on pushing through. She wants to save these people. She wants to track down Buffalo Bill, and she's willing to speak to the devil himself to uh, to do that. And she just it's incredible. Uh, it's also an extremely well made film. Oh yeah, amazing supporting cast. Anthony Hopkins is only in for a few minutes, but my God, he's all over the film. But uh, yeah. But it's uh, Jodie Foster who brings it all together. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's my number one. Well, obviously, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think there's two things that really make this one stand out as her best performance for me. One is that, you know, going up against Anthony Hopkins in that role, giving that performance, and she holds her own every bit. I mean, he could have so easily overwhelmed her in that movie. And even though his yeah, character yeah. is the most famous one... You know, if you say the name Clarice Starling, people know who you're talking about. You know, obviously everyone knows Hannibal Lecter, but if you say Clarice or you know, mention something like that, people know who she is, you know, because she's just as memorable in a different way uh, as Anthony Hopkins is. Um, and so I think being able to play against that and not being just completely overshadowed is is amazing. Uh, the other thing 
that makes it stand out is I just recently rewatched Hannibal, which was the sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to that film, and uh, she didn't return for it, unfortunately. And Julianne Moore took over the role of Clarice yeah. Starling, and I love Julianne Moore. I think she is one of the best actresses working today, and her performance doesn't hold a candle to Jodie Foster. Oh no, it's yeah. I was I always forget that the that the character's in Hannibal, to be honest. Right, and that's the thing, and, and not to slight Julianne Moore, because she's a terrific, terrific actress, but she just doesn't get that character the same way that uh, Jodie Foster did. There's something about her performance that's lacking, and I don't know if it's because you can compare it to Jodie Foster or if she just wasn't feeling it or what, um, but I think that says something. When, when, when Julianne Moore, one of the finest actors of our <laughs> generation, doesn't hold a candle to your performance in a film, that's a pretty damn good performance, you know? So um, I think that's it, it was an obvious choice for, for number one. But I could see it. Maybe somebody would have gone for Taxi Driver uh, because that's clearly a, a, a role she's Yeah, yeah. For. That almost made my list, but yeah. not quite. Yeah, same here. It was a little too small of a role, but, you yeah. know. But Chloe Starling has been... Uh, been ranked as one of the greatest film heroines of all time. Oh, and I, I think she deserves yeah, it. It's a totally great yeah. character in a great it's movie crazy. with a great performance. All right, very good. So those are our lists. Some similarities, obviously, this time, but I think that's just because some of her movies, she's given some really amazing performances that stand out, you know, just that much. So yeah, yeah. Uh, there you go. That's our top five Jodie Foster performances. And that is going to start to bring our episode to a close. But before we get out of here, Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? I will. Next time, we're going to be going after the ending of Twins and Treasure Planet. Yeah, that's the uh, Schwarzenegger and DeVito twins. Yes, correct, correct. And we'll be also talking about our top five favorite performances by an actor called Harrison Ford. Uh, yeah, that'll be a super easy one to narrow down to five films. <laughs> yeah, and we can't include whole trilogies. Yeah, yeah. Watch. Yeah, I don't know what make you say that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so that should be. A, that's a good one. I'm looking forward to that episode. Yes, but that's what's coming up next time. All right. Very cool. Okay. Well, that's going to do us for now, then. So, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring, and I'm Phil Edwards, and we'll see you next week after the ending. I always wanted to do like a web series about like a guy who still talks like it's 1935, like, but he's in the modern world. He just walks around and he's like, so listen, broads, here's what's going to happen. See, we're going out to dinner, right? And then we're going to go to a show. See, whether you like it or not. And don't give me no lip about it. And then the woman's like, uh, okay, are you, are you what was paying? He's like, now listen, see, I'm taking over the business. See? And like, she'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I always thought that'd be fun. Got visions of like going like to the drive-through as well, stuff like that. Right, right, exactly. It's like, yeah, give me one of them Big Macs, see? And be like, uh, so you want you want a Big Mac? He's like, oh, what, what am I speaking another language, chappy? <laughs> performances by Jodie Foster. And I'll say something as soon as I stop drinking. Okay. Sorry, I was drinking, and then I'm like, oh no, <laughs> bad timing. <laughs> I shouldn't have drunk anything. <laughs> right. But hydration is so important. Oh, why um, Why was I drinking? <laughs> and there's your weird American voice again. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> is that what it is? It's Gomer Pyle? I, I don't know who that's Gomer Pyle is. I just know that Robin Williams did it in Good Morning Vietnam. So that's it. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. You don't know who Gomer Pyle is? Some, he's some soldier in something. What was he, he was in? A, <laughs> he was in a TV show called Gomer Pyle. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, he started off on the Andy Griffith show. And that's then he, I knew he started off on a show and then got his own show, but I didn't. Yeah. That's all, pretty much all I know. Okay. One of the few impressions that I do is is actually Gilmer Pyle. Ah, uh, well, who, what what kind of character is Gilmer Pyle? He's kind of a uh, like a country bumpkin. 
Ah, uh, okay. You know, who ends up in the in the Marine Corps and is just always getting in trouble. And he goes, well, golly, Sergeant. Okay, I get or, you. Or he does what you just said, which is, you know. Surprise, um, surprise, surprise. Yeah, that's a, that's a Gomer Pyle thing. Ah, uh, well, now I've learned a little something about the American TV culture. Yes. Launching next week, it's the Gomer Pyle podcast from After the Ending. Wow, After gonna... the Ending presents Gomer Pyle. We're going to go through every episode of The Andy Griffith Show and then Gomer Pyle and be talking about it and just seeing how exactly the same each episode was. I Listen, I, I would bet that there probably isn't one of those out there yet. So maybe this is like our could be our niche to like really, you know, get some of those big download numbers. Yeah, from the perspective. And I don't watch a single episode of it. <laughs> right, right. And I still right, have exactly. no idea. I, I watch I, them all. You don't yeah. watch any of them. And then we make a podcast about it. And I don't read up on it or look at any pictures or anything. So I don't, I'm going to clue about what it, any of it is. Do you know what the sad part is? What? We'd probably get 10 times more downloads for yeah, that. Yeah, we, we probably would. He was still sitting in sun... Yeah. I just realized I wrote, still sitting in stunned silence, and I have to say that out loud, which is not going to be easy, so bear with me here. <laughs> he was still sitting in stunned silence when he, I said it, but it made me laugh. Okay. One more time. He was still sitting in stunned silence when the CIA picked him up, and I realized I had CIA at the end of yeah, the Yeah, wow. Can't. Holy cow. I'm a glutton for punishment. He finds out that this guy started as a street racer, a street racer, but he become a crime lord. A street racer is someone quite different. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to make the fastest rise you've ever seen, one quarter <laughs> mile at a time. <laughs> He's like, I don't even wait for the water to boil. Yeah. It's just uncooked rice. <laughs> it's my special crunchy rice. Dominic Toretto making it be like, yeah, crunchy rice. <laughs> That's right. Hobbs warned. Hobbs warned him of this. Hobbs warned. Hobbs warned. I can't. That's a simple thing. Why can't I say that? <laughs>